if you've been with us so far, I hope that you've noticed that in each chapter, in every single chapter, what is talked about is people coming to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, or their belief in him. And at the end of every story, at the end of every chapter, it describes how they come to believe in Jesus, or they say they believe in Jesus. So, for example, in chapter 1, you see the, the great description the Apostle John gave of Jesus as being the Son of God, as being deity, uh, God in the flesh, and how he came and appeared. And, and then you see this description towards the end that's describing him gathering his disciples, specifically the story of Nathaniel. And what you find in the end of chapter 1 is that they believed Jesus at his word. Like in chapter one, he hadn't even performed his first miracle yet. It was simply Jesus coming to them, speaking to them, and telling them to come and follow after me. And at the word of Jesus, they believed enough to follow after him, simply at his word. And then in chapter two, we have the Cana wedding. That was where the water was turned to wine. And you see his disciples, it says again, believed him, in him, at the end of that story. One of the signs, the first signs that were performed. And then after the clearing of the temple, I didn't go into it too much when I preached on that, but the final verses were that many people believed based upon the signs that they saw him do. And so there's a whole group of people after he, he wipes out the whole temple, goes outside, and he's there for the Passover feast, and he starts performing miracle signs and wonders, and all sorts of people start believing in him to some degree based upon the miracles they saw him do. And so in chapter, that was chapter two, those two stories in chapter three, you have Nicodemus, the story of the man in a foxhole that really knows that he needs to come to Jesus but isn't sure if he should come to Jesus and wants to know more about Jesus. But why was he inquisitive of Jesus? It says because he had seen the signs that Jesus had been performing. And so based upon the signs, he had come to Jesus to want to know more about him. And then you have, at the end of chapter 3, the story a little bit more about John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, he didn't necessarily need to see any signs. That guy was preaching the coming of Jesus before, you know, Jesus was even on the scene. So here's John the Baptist, the greatest prophet who ever lived, the Bible says, and he simply believed because God spoke it, because God said it. And so he even encouraged his disciples when they, they were questioning about who Jesus is and let them go to follow after Jesus. And then we have the woman at the well. This is what was preached last week by Pastor Craig. And then she goes into her city. She begins to tell them of all the, the things that Jesus had said about her life. And some people might mistakenly believe that because Jesus operated in maybe the gift of prophecy, the word of knowledge, you know, something about a, a word that is here and now and relevant to their life, that it was a sign that would cause a whole village to believe, which isn't true at all. Because when you read towards the end about how the whole village then came to believe Jesus after he followed her and stayed with her for two, uh, two days in the village. It says in verse 41 of chapter 4, And many more believed because of her telling them that he could give them a word of knowledge or because he was a fortune teller, a psychic. No, it says many more believed because of his own 
word, Jesus's words. They believed simply based upon his word. And they said to the woman, this is to the contrary of anybody that thinks that it might have been because of any sort of sign. Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Simply based on his word, who he is. What I want you to, to grasp this morning is what we should see so far is nothing, nothing is more important than your faith. Nothing is more important than believing in Jesus. Nothing. Everybody say that with me. Nothing. I want you to hear that more than anything in life. Nothing is more important than your belief in Jesus Christ. And that is the point of today's story. As hard as it might seem when we go through this story, there is one point, nothing's more important than your belief in Christ. John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. The word of God says this. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him. Everybody say implored. I want you to understand right here is this continual idea of he is begging Jesus nonstop to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. And so the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The seventh hour in Jewish time, if it was based off Jewish time, was probably around 1 p.m., and so the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This, again, is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now, I want you to remember as we begin to break these verses down, why is the apostle John writing this letter? In John chapter 20, verse 31, he makes it clear. And when he writes, but these are written, he's going to tell seven miraculous stories. These are written that you may believe, everybody say believe, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. That he is the Son of God, he says. And that believing, you may have life in his name. His whole intention for every story he writes is that we would have belief, that the readers would have belief. And what we see in these stories is that these stories are about people who are coming to a place of belief in their life. 
and how they came to believe and what is important about that belief. I believe that, that what we see in the story of the nobleman's son, and, and I'll probably start referring to him as the official because some of your translations will say the, the royal official or the official's son, the nobleman, whatever. That means that he was somebody that was probably from Herod's court. He had money. He had influence. He had power. We don't know if he was Jewish or he was Roman necessarily. He could have been one or the other. Regardless, he wouldn't have been liked by your regular Jew because of his support for those people. And yet, knowing who he was, he still came to Jesus, right? And so we're going to look at how he came to him with a sincere faith, a trusting faith, and then finally, a contagious faith. Now, the story as we begin to read it is Jesus' return to Cana, where Jesus obviously, it says, did his first miracle of turning water to wine. And then this official comes upon the scene. Why? Because his son is sick and dying. If there's anything that will drive you to Jesus or to inquire of Jesus, it would probably be what I would consider one of the worst tragedies in life, and that is one of your children having the potential of dying or dying. I, I can think of of people that it's happened to. I can think of times in my life uh, as a young parent when our girls were in the hospital and I was in the University of Idaho at the time and Stacy calling me and saying our twins who were born uh, two and a half months early, uh, they both took turns almost dying before we got them out of the hospital. And she was saying, you know, the doctor said that we need to get to the hospital because uh, one of the girls, I can't remember which one at that time frame, was not going to make it. And so I remember I didn't have a car back then. I had a crotch rocket, which is the smartest thing to have in the winter in North Idaho, in the spring. But you know how smart you are when you're in college at that age, and uh, at, at least for me. And I remember asking my best friend for his car, and I remember crying all the way to Spokane from Moscow and begging God to please save my daughter and that if he would save her, that I would serve him all the days of my life. And, and, I, and I wasn't at that place in my life. Like, I wasn't going to church. I was not seeking the Lord at all. I was just the opposite. But that, that thought of losing a child would cause me, who would fight with other Christians and make fun of them and that sort of thing, uh, come to a place where, like, God, if you would just do this, this bargaining chip, Right? If you will do this, I will serve you. And don't think that I acted upon what I said to him right away. It took years. Nevertheless, my point is that it comes a place in life where you can have a foxhole faith and everything around you is going to hell in a handbasket. And you get to this point where Jesus seems like the only option left. And Jesus will take that opportunity. And that's where this man is. He has, he has no other place to look, right? We don't know much about this man. Just so you know, he doesn't appear in any other story. Uh, some people think that he might have been in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's not the centurion that appears to Jesus in, in Matthew and Luke's gospel. It's a completely different man. Like I said, he was probably one of Herod's officials of significant status. Uh, but what I want to point out about him is that obviously he seems to be a good father. 
And why do we know that? Because he was desperate to save his son. Like back then, if, if an official had, mul had multiple wives, if they had multiple kids, there wasn't the, quite the same connection for some parent and their children. But in this case, he was desperate for his son enough that he would walk from Capernaum, where he lived, to Cana. What does that mean to you guys? That means that he walked or rode a horse, potentially, from Smelterville to Molin. That's how far it is. And it was uphill all the way. That's why he would say, come down with me, right? Because he just walked over 20 miles or rode a horse over 20 miles to hurry and get, like, if you think your child's going to die right now, and you had no car but the, the answers in Mullen, you would go, right? But it's not going to be easy to get from here to there in a quick time frame. And I'm sure on, in your mind, all the way there, all you're thinking about is, is your child still alive? Are they going to make it? There's all these questions that, that probably was going on inside of his head. And so you know that he was a desperate father, but he was a good father. He was willing to make that trip to do whatever it takes. He also seemed to be a decent man, as we read in some of these verses about how his servants come to meet him to share about his son's health, that they went to find him, that they went to seek after him. They seemed to care about him more than likely because he cared about them. Uh, but what we need to see, what we see also is this, is this, that good social status does not prevent sorrows in life. Good economic status does not prevent sorrows in life. And to be clear, neither does a good moral status present uh, prevent sorrows in life. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have. And it doesn't matter how good of a person you are. There will always be sorrows in life. This man's son is dying and he has no answers. And so what does he do? He hears about Jesus the word of Jesus has been spreading. As we heard from Nicodemus, Jesus was becoming a very well-known uh, miracle worker, if you would, over the last several stories. And so we see in verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, that's he's coming from Jerusalem where he was, and he performed all these signs and wonders, back to Cana, the area of Galilee, when he hears about this, so the word traveled fairly quickly within three days, then he went to him and he asked him to come down and heal his son for he's at the point of death. What I want you to see is he's at the, what I would say, the first stage of faith. Number one is sincere faith. He heard about Jesus. He heard what Jesus could do. He heard was where, what G, where he was going. And so he came. And this is how faith often starts like I described, had it not been the commitment that I never forgot that I made to the Lord on the way to the hospital that night, I don't know where I would be in life. And so oftentimes we hear something about Jesus, and what does that cause us to do? That causes us to come seeking him. 
It's not necessarily a strong thing yet, but it's something. It's the seed of faith that's probably been planted inside of us, and the Holy Spirit nudges us to come seek after Jesus because oftentimes he's the only place left to go. So the official hears about Jesus. He knows that Jesus is able to do things that nobody else could do, and I imagine that it started him questioning things, thinking about things, wondering, maybe Jesus, and this is for everybody, maybe Jesus could do something about my situation. I don't know if you've ever had those thoughts before, but I'm sure many people have shared those types of thoughts, whether out of curiosity or desperation. It's enough for us to come to Jesus and many times come to Jesus in a way that we never would have came before if it wasn't for this incident taking place in our lives. This is often how faith starts. It starts with hearing the truth. He heard the truth about what Jesus had accomplished, and then there's a sincere seeking of that truth. So the official hears, he seeks Jesus, and then he asks Jesus to come to his home. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody came and said, would you come because I think my child is, could have passed away, might be passing away, would you come and pray? How many of you would say, let's go? I hope all of you would say, let's go, pray. Like there's a seriousness to that, and we all understand that. But I want you to notice Jesus' response wasn't that. In fact, for as sincere as the man might have been, it almost seems that Jesus is just the opposite in his response. In verse 48, Jesus said to him, as he comes to him, mind you, he's imploring him. He is begging him. And Jesus' response, it says, is unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. What is that about? I, I don't know about you, but like if I came to somebody and that was the, like unless you see signs and wonders, like I'm sorry, but unless you see signs and wonders, like you're never going to believe. Doesn't that seem ruthless or harsh? Like, why would the God of love respond in such a way? It seems like such a strange response. But you know that Jesus often responded in strange ways. Think, think about his mom, how he responds to his mom at the wedding in Cana when she's talking to him about how they're out of wine, and Jesus says to his mom, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Like, that's a strange response, right? Because most moms would be like, what? Bam. Hit him with the shoe, whatever you got to do, right? It's a strange response. But he was getting at a point in that situation. And if you haven't heard it, Ryan preached it a few weeks ago. Go on our YouTube channel. You can listen to it. The next weird one is when Nicodemus comes to Jesus and, you know, Nicodemus is essentially wondering about salvation. How do I have eternal life? And Jesus' response to him is, you got to be born again. Makes sense to us nowadays, but back then, what was Nicodemus, who was one of the wisest, smartest, wealthiest men, who had studied God word, God's word all of his life's response? Like, that doesn't even make sense. How do I crawl back up into my mother's womb? Right? That, that's, that's a strange response that Jesus would give to what's seemingly a serious question. At the well in Samaria, he's thirsty, right? And he tells the lady, 
you know, that he wants a drink, that he's thirsty. And when she questions him, not questioning him like she doesn't want to give him a drink or that she won't give him a drink, but questioning him why he would even ask because she knows that they hate her people. They hate uh, Samaritans. They hate women that, you know, are adulterers that would be there at noon. Like the Jews would think of her as dirty and filthy and you're going to share the same cup. Like there's just this questioning inside of her, not nothing being a smart aleck. And Jesus' response to her, when she asks is, you know what, if you knew the gift of God and who I am, you would have asked him and he'd have given you living water. You might sit here and think, well, yeah, because we just studied that last week, that makes sense. It didn't make sense. Like that's a strange response. Jesus did not give normal responses that would have fed into people's emotions or cultural norms or, or just answered their intellectual questions. He gave them responses to make them think about what is the most important thing in life. Because in every conversation, Jesus is telling a bigger story that goes beyond our circumstances, that goes beyond what we see with our natural eyes. He's trying to get across what the bigger plan is. He's confronting something that's much deeper than outward appearances. He's trying to get to the heart of the matter. As harsh as it may seem, as strange as it may seem, when he answers, it's because he sees the big picture. To understand Jesus' response, we have to understand he's not singling this guy out. Now, some of your translations make it sound like Jesus just said to him. Some of yours, like the New King James, says you people. So it was a response to everybody that was around him. Because Jesus had said before that that a prophet's without honor in his own hometown. And that when he had come back home to Cana, to that area, to the area of Galilee, that he knew that people there were just all of a sudden excited about him as they weren't before because they had heard of him performing signs and wonders or possibly even seen him when he was in Jerusalem because they were there for the Passover feast just as well. And so now all of a sudden they're like, hey, the miracle worker comes from our town, from our neighborhood, from our county, from our city, from our state, you know? And so what he's responding to is not necessarily just the man, though the man had heard the same stories. He's responding to everybody there. And so this man is getting lumped in with everyone else in the town. You people. And his response really is saying, you don't care about me for who I am. You only care about what I can do. And quite honestly, that's the response of faith to many people when it comes to Jesus. They come seeking Jesus for what he can do, not for who he is. And all we want for him is to fix our problems. Because we've heard from other people that he's a miracle worker. Or that he helped change this person's life. They were an addict for 30 years. They had this miraculous transformation, and all of a sudden they're preaching the gospel. You hear story after story, and eventually when you have nowhere else to turn, you come to Jesus for what he can do. 
And that's often how even we are at times, like he's the wishing well, right? And we just come to Jesus in prayer or seeking after him because we want to make sure that he can do the things we need him to do or that he will do those things like watch out for my family, protect my family, you know, help us in our job, increase our wealth, and help us to have a good life and a safe life and a comfortable life and, and, and all these other things. Like, like we come to Jesus with our prayers. Not everybody, I'm not judging people, but a lot of times just simply for what Jesus can do, not for who he is. And so he's kind of pressing the issue with these people. And when he, he's throwing this out, he wants them to understand something. Like, if that's why you came to me, you're missing the point. Don't miss the point. You will allow your tragedies, your hurts, your circumstances, your heartaches, your challenges, and your stresses to sometimes cause you to miss the point, the big picture in life. And he's trying to challenge them like, listen, y'all came to me for the wrong reason. Don't miss the big picture because they're not sincere in seeking who he is. They're only there to see what he can do. And so really this is a challenge. He's trying to separate those who are seeking him from what he can do from those who are seeking him for who he is. Think about it this way. People will often question, right, these questions. You guys have heard them before. If God is a healer, then why are there sick children in the world? If God is peaceful, then why do wars take place? If God loves, then why do bad things happen to good people? We've all had those questions. Maybe not the exact way that those were worded. But behind the question is a desire to see God prove himself by taking evil things away, then we'd all believe in him and live happily ever after. Which you know is a false premise. People would believe and kneel if God did something about all of our troubles. But listen, think rationally for a moment. We all know plenty of people who are healthy, they have food on the table, they have a roof over their head. They aren't struggling from the effects of war, and yet they do not have a relationship with God. Believe it or not, there is something more important to Jesus than all of the requests that have been set before him, including this man's request for the healing of his son. Our relationship with God must not simply be based on his ability to heal, to perform miracles, or to remove evil from our lives. Listen to that. Our faith should not simply be based upon his ability to heal, to perform miracles, or to remove evil from our lives. Our faith has to be different than the crowd that is around us. 
it has to be different than the way that the world thinks by grabbing on to the word of Jesus alone. Listen, this sincere faith, this sincere seed brought the official to Jesus, right? When Jesus made that response, you know what could have happened? The official could have gotten offended because that's what most Americans would do. Our little pansy little faith gets offended all the time and we would walk away and we would go somewhere else. We'd go to a church down the road, somebody who would answer our requests like we want them to answer our requests, somebody who would give us the answer that we are looking for to make us feel better about all of our issues, somebody that will, will tell us the lie that we already believe. We're looking for that, and if we don't find it in the church, we'll find it in the bar, we'll find it in a club somewhere, we'll find it in sort of some sort of organization or in a group of friends that, that have birds of a feather and flock together with all the issues that I have, Right? He could have gotten offended and walked away completely. And like we would have questioned, well, what was the purpose, Jesus? You could have had an opportunity here. But Jesus wasn't driving at that this is just an opportunity for him to walk away. He was trying to separate the man from the rest of the crowd to see if his faith was real in who Jesus was. And the man responded in the correct way. He wasn't discouraged. He didn't quit. He wasn't chased off because God's word is too tough right? God's word is so hard to follow after. God's word is, is strict. There's so many rules. Have you guys ever heard things like that? And that's why we don't want to follow after. I don't want my life to be full of a bunch of, of rules. And so people use those as excuses to, to not follow after God. But instead of letting those ideas and falsities chase him off, the official accepts the challenge. Like that's a man of faith right there. Go ahead and throw it at me. Keep piling it on because I'm not leaving you, Jesus. I don't care what happens. I'm here. And that's exactly how he responds. His faith is different from the rest of the crowd because he makes that request one more time. I was begging before, and just because you threw out a statement like that doesn't mean I'm going to quit begging and walk away. I'm going to get on my knees, and I'm going to keep begging. I'm going to keep seeking. I'm going to come after you no matter what. And that's exactly what he does. He said, sir, come down before my child dies. I want you to walk from Molin with me to Smelterville before my son dies. He's not leaving the feet of Jesus. But here's where his faith, though it may be sincere, is a little bit off. Because he believes that when it comes to Jesus, he has to see something in order to believe it. He's wanting Jesus to come with him. That's the next challenge. We might come to Jesus, right, because of those issues, but then still, in order to have a deeper faith than just a sincere faith, we still think that we need to see something in order to believe it. And that's in every one of our lives. I don't care who you are. There are times in life where you really got to see Jesus move in order for your faith to grow. Maybe it's not going away or it's, it's not dying, but there's still those times where you're like, Jesus, please, Jesus, I've got to see this. And that's where he was. Come with me, Jesus. He was still at that place where for him, seeing was believing. But Jesus is about to transform his worldly thinking, because that's the way the world thinks. They have to see to believe. But in verse 50, Jesus responds to him, and he said, go your way. 
your son lives. That's it. So the man believed instead of the sign, instead of the miracle, instead of even a prophetic word, however you want to put that. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way, just as Jesus told him to do. Instead of an outward demonstration of the miraculous, Jesus is testing the official's faith once again by making him trust in Jesus' word alone. God's word is true. It is faithful. If he said it, he will do it. That's the promise of God's word. And so what Jesus is really doing is like, yes, you stayed. Okay, now trust me at my word. Trust me at my word. That's the next step of faith. That's a trusting faith. He gave the father an opportunity, you might say, to move to maybe a higher level or a deepening of the faith, however you want to describe that. No longer just believing in what he saw Jesus do, but believing on who he was. Is Jesus a man of integrity? Does he keep his word? Does his word come to pass? Is his promise true? And so that's the test that comes for those who have accepted Christ in their, into their lives. Is now do we trust him at his word? At what he says, no matter what it appears to be, no matter how we feel or the way we think, will we trust him at his word? Not only did he hear the word and believe, but it says that he went the way Jesus told him to go. Like, go your way, and he went. What did that mean? He trusted, and what's the little kid's song? And obeyed. He trusted and obeyed. That's a two-part thing. He actually left, and he went the way that Jesus told him to go. Listen, I don't know. There might have been still some question. I've seen different I, people talk about that in his head, like, okay, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to go. But you know how sometimes you trust Jesus, and you go, and you obey, but along the way, there's still these thoughts that go through your head, still these questions that still sometimes arise, like, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you. You try to almost talk yourself into trusting him even more than what you say that you trust him already. I don't know if you guys have ever been there, but like, you, it's kind of like, Hope in a prayer like, okay, I trust your word, I trust your word, which there's nothing wrong with. Uh, you just keep holding on to that word and you, you keep believing that his word is going to come to pass. And that's where the official was. It wasn't based upon how he felt. Somebody hear me? In this little Pentecostal church in northern Idaho, it had nothing to do with the way that he felt. It had to do with God's word. And so... He went his way, but watch what he does. How do we know that he trusted Jesus' word so much? In verse 51, and as he was now going down, that's down the hill. You're coming back from Mullen to Smelterville, and you're going down the hill. The, his servants met him partway. They told him, saying, your son lives now, the idea behind uh, what they describe here in verse 52, he inquired of them at the hour of when he got better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seven hour, the fever left him. Like, that wasn't a gradual getting better. The idea in the Greek here is that it literally immediately left him. Like, it chased away. It was an instant healing. 
that took place in his son's life. Not a gradual healing. Now, the reason we know how much the official trusted Jesus was in the words that his, his servants just used. His son was healed on the seventh hour, right? That was probably 1 p.m. in the afternoon. That would have been the day before. They said yesterday, right? Now, if you're begging for your child's life at the Molin Pavilion and Jesus says, go, your child's healed, what are you going to do? I'm going to walk back from Molin. I maybe run back from Molin until I can't run 100 yards later. Okay, never mind. I'll do my best to move as fast as I possibly can to get back to Smelderville to see that my child is healed. Is that not correct? But he runs into his servants partway in his trip the next day. What does that mean? Yes, he went his way as Jesus told him to go his way, but he, instead of rushed back, he rested in God's word. He spent the night in Molin. He spent the night there. For the official that is high up to spend the night in Cana would have been just like you and I think about staying in a motel in Molin. Like, why? Why? I'm not picking on Molin people, right? Because Bob's one of my closest friends. But why would you stay in a motel in Molin? Why not just come home, even if you got to walk, and see that your child lives, right? He kicked back in a motel in Mullen, and then he decided to get up the next day and start walking back, right? And then partway into the journey, his servants come halfway, like because they had enough time to see the, the child healed, and then they were probably wondering, when's he coming back? And when he didn't return, they probably thought, maybe we should go and find him and see what's going on, what's wrong. He doesn't know. Is he still searching for Jesus? Did something happen? You know, what took place? And instead, they get to him, and he's just like, <whistles> right? He's just chilling, walking back home. And they're like, listen, your son lived. And he's like, cool, what hour was that? Like, it's not that he, he didn't have some question, but how many know that there's growth in your faith every time God confirms something in your life? I, mean, I can't even tell you, this is, like, I don't, I'm not, I don't even know how to say this without making it sound wrong. I have faith probably like never before in my life. And, yeah, I'm not saying I have great faith. This is Corey's walk with God. Like, obviously, I've been pastoring for years. I've known the Lord for years, and that's how it should be for every one of us that's sitting here this morning. Today, you should have greater faith than you did yesterday. Today, you should have greater faith than you did a year ago and the year before that and the year before that because our faith should continually be growing. Amen? So that's what I'm saying. Today, I have greater faith than ever before. And how did I get to a place of, of the faith that I have now? It wasn't just like this one-time event that built up to this. Many challenges, trials, and tribulations. But I got to tell you that there were certain stepping stones in my life that I can look back on and say, man, that moment like really deepened my faith or strengthened my faith, whatever word you want to use right there. And a lot of times those moments took place 
when God confirmed who he was in my life. Like, I could tell you time, you know, like time after time where, you know, we were praying for something and it happened. And though I had faith before that, God confirmed what we were praying for. And bam, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, how can this be? But he is of the Lord, like Nicodemus, right? Like all of a sudden I'm like, yes. You know, we don't see this every time, but it's nice to get those step, stepping stones once in a while that just confirm it. And the great thing is, the longer you believe in the Lord, the more stepping stones you have to be able to look back on, those re stones of remembrance that remind you, that help you get to where you are today. Like, I, we could be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and be looking at the fiery furnace, the next step that we take, but it's okay. Because that's how they felt. It doesn't matter. I have enough stepping stones behind me that I know that even if I step into that fiery furnace, that he is going to be with me. I could tell you time after time of just miraculous things that took place, and God's like, bam, there it is. Like, I've had thoughts while I'm standing in the shower, and then I, I go somewhere, and bam, what it is that God put in my head is exactly what takes place uh, an hour later. I, you guys have heard like when we went to the Todd White conference a few years ago and then God gives me a dream like doesn't even make sense. But then all of a sudden you go to all these different places and I wanted to go other places to try and find who the Lord wanted me to witness to. And I end up in a Cabela's that I didn't want to be in, didn't know if it was true, thought the dream was crazy and shared it with the guy that it was exactly what he needed to hear. And I walked away from that just realizing, you know what, it wasn't about me, but gosh, how good is God that he would do that and that's not like all of a sudden, you know, Corey's got superhero faith, but that was a strengthening of my faith. Like, wow, how could that be but the word of God is real, it's alive, and it's life-changing. And so I'm not saying, like, this is the progression of everybody's faith. you got to go through these three steps today to acclaim Billy Graham status in the United States. This is stepping stones that you can look back on, and these things take place. There's times even now I will come to God with sincere faith, not trusting faith. Like, I, I will come and be like, I'm desperate, God. I need you to do something. I need to see it. This is what I need. I, 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 maybe it's called reversion. I don't know. But I, I get to that place where I'm there. I believe in you. I just need to see something take place right here. And it's not the trusting faith that I'm talking about right now. These are, are, are just phases of our faith. But each phase helps you strengthen your faith in him. And that's exactly what took place in the official's life. He's like, what time was it? 1 p.m., and he didn't just gradually get better, and then all of a sudden that's when we decided he must have been better at 1 p.m., but he'd been starting to get better in the morning. No, he went from 105-degree temperature to a perfect body temperature, and he was completely normal and jumped out of bed, and he did a little dance and said, hallelujah. That's Corey's story. That's not the Bible, just so you guys don't think I'm... It was an instant thing. The fever fled his body. That's what it's describing. There was no question in the nobleman's life that it was at the moment Jesus said, your son lives, bam, he lives. That was it. He had a trusting faith. And then all of a sudden, it comes through. And then he has this leisurely 
place, uh, leisurely pace in his life, which some might view being differently, but I believe it was a demonstration of his newfound belief. He took another step in his faith. In fear, the official ran to com- from Capernaum to Cana. In faith, he walked back. You know, Isaiah wrote in chapter 28, verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, and this is a description of Jesus, I lay in Zion, Jerusalem, a stone, Jesus Christ, for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. This is what Father God is describing of his son, Jesus Christ. And what he says is whoever believes will not act hastily. What's he describing? Like when you believe in Jesus, like you don't have to worry about the rush. God wants you to learn to simply rest in his word. I think about the story of Lazarus. And in the story of Lazarus, he had died several days earlier. Now, this, in theory, was probably Jesus' best friend or one of his closest friends growing up. And what happens when he finds out that Lazarus is dying? He takes a few days to get there. Guess what? He's not in a rush. He's resting in the power of the word because he knows. And that's where he wants us to be in life. Quit letting your mind race. Like, you may not be traveling to Mullen and back, but you're sitting on your couch, you're sitting in your chair, and your mind is going a million miles an hour, racing nonstop in a rush to see God's word do something when God is saying no. If you trust, just rest in my word. This isn't the final stage of faith. After his servants confirmed that his son is healed in verse 53, it says, So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And then it says, And he himself believed and his whole household. Number three is contagious faith. Contagious faith. Like, to me, I wondered if this was a progression of faith, a deepening of faith from trusting God to contagious faith. I think it's not something that we, like, have to look to. I think it's something that will happen when you fully trust God. That faith is contagious. When you see God do crazy things in your life that you know is only God, like he's real, he's alive, his word is true, like you're going to share those things. You're going to talk about those things. And hopefully you're sharing them at least with the people that are the closest to you and around you, your family. And that's exactly what we see take place in this story. 
is that all of a sudden this guy goes from probably what at one time was no faith to having a sincere enough faith that he would seek after Jesus to find the truth to having a trusting faith. And now he comes home and his entire household believes, right? It's not just his family, it's his household. He was a wealthy man. That means that he probably had a few maids, a few servants. He had, he had some guys that would find him on the road somewhere. Like everybody that's involved with his family, the entire household believes in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Now, was this progression? Didn't he already believe? Yeah, he had this sincere belief, but that wasn't quite an, enough he believed Jesus' words were true and trustworthy, but I don't even think that that's enough. That, that's where we should be is having that trusting faith. But now he believes in such a way, right, that you might believe, but if you sit at home and do nothing all the time, like where's the sharing of your faith? Where's the, where's the telling of the good news? Like it's okay like to share about Jesus. And I do think that there's some aspect of growth in your faith where you get to this place where you don't mind sharing those things. Now, oftentimes, when I was younger, I was hesitant in sharing those things unless people asked because I was afraid of what they would say to me, think about me, the arguments or division that it might cause. I didn't want that thing in my life. And maybe it's getting older or maybe it's getting older in the faith, but you get to a place where you really don't give a rip what people think anymore. And so you kind of just go with what you go with. You know, wear the shirt that you want to wear, Right? You don't care if it has stains. It says celebrate Jesus on it. I'm going to wear it whether you like it or not to your family potluck. You know what? And you have a bunch of atheist relatives. It doesn't matter. I don't care. It's who I am, right? That's, that's where you get to. And I do believe that that's a phase of your faith. Like it doesn't really matter. You can't shake this. It's not just what I believe. It's who I am. And so there's a total difference in that faith and the trusting faith. Yes, I trust Jesus to do these things, but now I don't care who believes. In fact, I want you to know and believe what God has done in my life. I want to be able to share that with you. I am proud of who my God is, and that's a good pride. This is my Jesus. I believe in what he accomplished for me. I believe in who he is, and I believe that I want to spend the rest of my life with him, and that's what this is about. Like, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks, says, or does. And so there is that phase, and I believe that he quickly came to that phase because of, of Jesus' word in his life and his whole household, right? Now, the final phrase, and I want to close with this, of this chapter, says, this, again, is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea and into Galilee. Now, remember, this... Uh, what John's writing about here isn't referring to like this is G only Jesus' second sign, period. He performed miracle signs and wonders in Jerusalem, in Judea, like multiple signs and wonders. This is the second sign that he did in his own hometown, like in that area, right? Not just in the city of Cana, but in that area. So he first turned water into wine. Now we're going to see this happen. There will come a point in Jesus' ministry when he actually refers to that city as being worse off than Sodom because they, if Sodom had seen the signs that were performed, even the people in, in Jesus' own area, then Sodom would have came to the Lord. Like he was trying to get his people to fully understand who he was. And so when it comes to this, John is using this as an example to help people believe. 
You know, had I preached this verse, these verses a few years ago, my complete focus would have been upon the ability of God's power to heal this man. And God does heal, and we believe he heals. And he doesn't have to, to, to have his hand on somebody to see them healed. He can speak the word, and his word brings healing because there's power in his word. Nevertheless, the context of the story is referring to something that is more important than the healing of the man's son. Going back to the very beginning of what I said, there is nothing more important including that son's life, then coming to know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. That's what Jesus was driving at the whole time. And I want to tell you, there came a day when that son died. There came a, a day when the nobleman, the official died, because everybody dies. The difference being that because Jesus challenged the man and the man came to belief is that now when the household of the official dies, they all know Jesus Christ. And that's exactly Jesus' point. There's something more important, and that's knowing him. What you see in the first two signs in the Gospel of John that took place in Cana, the first sign was the best party ever, right? He like turned water into wine and it was the best wine, the best party that had ever taken place in Cana. There was no wine that had ever been made that was better. And it was at a wedding party. The second sign we see in Cana was connected to what could be considered one of the worst tragedies ever, losing a child. And listen, Jesus is there in both aspects. Jesus' power is there in both aspects. I want to close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He wrote, The power... The power of Jesus, the power of God's word, lies in the grace of God and not in our faith. Think more of him to whom you look than of the look itself. That's a powerful sentence. I think that you got to dwell upon and because I have the ability to read the words and dwell upon it, you may not catch that. Think more of him to whom you look than of the look itself. He's referring to faith. All too often we get caught up in our faith in God rather than God himself. And we're worried about our faith and how do we grow our faith and what do we do with our faith and is our faith weak right now or is it strong right now and what does our faith look like and what's the appearance of our faith and all these things and we're more worried about the vessel of faith than we are in the person we have faith in and so Charles Spurgeon is writing encouraging us to understand it's more about who you're looking at than how you're looking at him you must look away even from your own looking 
and see nothing but Jesus and the grace of God revealed in him. We all too often are focused on thinking we need this perfect faith. But as we just learned in the story of the official's son, this isn't about having perfect faith through it all. It's about sincerely seeking Jesus, trusting his word, and letting his way shine through us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We're all here in this room to seek you. Lord, I'm thankful that your word alone is something that we can stand on, trust in. That we can have belief that if you say it, it's yes and amen. So be it, it will come to pass. I thank you, not just for what you have done in people's lives, but for who you are. You leaving heaven, coming to earth, taking on flesh as a man, so that you may cause people to have a belief in you and bring a restoration through your death and resurrection that we can have a full relationship. Lord, I pray this morning for those who are going through challenging times, maybe similar to the nobleman's son. There's, there's tragedy in life. That in this season, that they will grab hold of your word, that they won't let go. And Lord, that this will be a stepping stone in their faith to only grow in their relationship with you. Lord, we thank you for your goodness that even when your word seems challenging, difficult, harsh, that we know that in your goodness, you're only looking out for what's most important, the best in our lives. Lord, I pray this morning that as we've heard your word, that we will do more than hear, but that we'll, we will act on your word and go in the direction you tell us to go. From sincere faith to trusting faith to contagious faith. 